This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, we've got an amazing show today. We do. Seriously, Francis. one of my favorite. It, it was. You know what? We just, I can't believe it. Francis Buell is just sitting in the podcast studio with us. Exactly. And we've both been fans for years, so really exciting to have her here and to get to meet her face-to-face. Yeah, and- Francis Buell, a local journalist, used to work for the Vancouver Sun for over 20 years, beat reporter, covers City Hall. Uh, all her work right now can be found at com, but she's in the Globe and Mail, um, and basically you find her everywhere. But I, I would start with her site for sure. Weren't you saying she's the Paul Simon of Vancouver? <laughs> the David Simon. Oh, the my David bad. Simon. My bad. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <Hello>. <laughs> just, just don't call her the Garfunkel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. David Simon, no, I was saying, you know, the creator of The Wire. So he used to be a beat reporter in Baltimore, and that's where that show gets that kind of the depth to sure. it, right? And Francis Buell is basically Vancouver's version. I agree. I agree. So Matt, uh, you had an interesting thing happen to you over the over the last little few well, days Well, it was here. just last night. I feel like I'm always having an interesting thing. Every time I meet my You're daughter. You're the storyteller I'm of the, the podcast. I'm the storyteller of the podcast. The so last one, of course, was when my daughter's swimming. She's now skating, and that brings on uh, a different set of stories. So last night she was at skating. I take her every week. It's, uh, you know, watching a five-year-old learn to skate is actually a lot of fun. Right. I convinced my wife, who has not ever went to skating, to go because it was one of the last classes. And, you know, it's, it's, a, very, it's a very cute thing to watch. Anyway, stop at Subway on the way home. Uh, that's kind of a tradition of the skating now that we, um, you know, that we stop there for, for a quick uh, six-inch on the way home. And uh, 
My wife got locked in the bathroom. Uh, on purpose. <laughs> she locked the door. Uh, no, <laughs> she she got locked in the bathroom for about forty five minutes in the subway. Um, what, on Main and, and on Main couldn't and get out. Forty ninth. Yeah, yeah. No, we had to get the fire. We should post some photos on our site. But no, she literally went into the bathroom. Okay. They the two guys and we know these guys because I'm there every week now. Like he, they recognize us. He right. assured me this has never happened before. <laughs> the uh, the bathroom door got stuck. Okay. So they were trying to kick it open for 10, 15 minutes. Right. She's inside. We're eating subs. Uh, so you and your daughter are just sitting there eating subs? Finished our subs, yeah. Right. Uh, and uh, and anyway, we had to get the, the fire department came and they brought in an axe. And Jaws, Jaws broke, of life. <laughs> they broke down the door. Yeah, we were there for about 45 minutes. Uh, wow. Good times. That's a walk of shame coming out of that bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> we got the photos. I'm telling you. Photos to prove Yeah, it. it's, uh, you know, when it happens, I feel like when next week we'll see what happens but we're on a we're on a real streak right now wow yeah you guys are uh a lot of of never a dull moment in the scalina family yeah uh all right well hey without further ado we've got a very it's actually a long but super entertaining interview with francis bula so maybe we should cut to that let's cut to that one enjoy guys Hi, Francis. How are you doing? I'm great. Well, thanks a lot for joining us. Yeah, thanks for your time. Can you tell some of our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a person who studied French and music in university and never thought I was going to be a journalist. We studied history. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And then suddenly you graduate and go, oh, holy shit, how am I going to support myself for the rest of my life? Is it okay that I say bad words every so often? It makes it even more entertaining. Okay. Uh, so I decided it was too late to get a PhD in marine biology. So I decided to become a journalist and I, I did an old fashioned route. I, I started working for small papers. Like, um, my first job was in the Creston Valley advance and I worked in Comox and Kamloops and eventually got on at the sun and discovered while I was there that I really liked beat reporting, which is when you cover a particular area like day in, day out. Because uh, I felt like in general assignment, people can kind of get away with anything. They can kind of right. tell you anything and you don't have enough depth to be able to ever challenge them. Um, so I found I like beat reporting and I did education first. And then uh, in 94, I asked to cover City Hall um, because the, the spot was open. And um, I've been covering City Hall and urban issues uh, ever since. And you know, had a chance to do some really different things while I was doing that. One of them was I got a, I had a year-long fellowship from the Atkinson Foundation to study homelessness and uh, affordable housing kind of around the world uh, because Vancouver, which didn't actually have much of a homelessness problem back then, but right. it was starting to emerge, so I, I got interested in it. Uh, so I had a chance to do that. And um, yeah, so I worked, did that at the Vancouver Sun for a long time. And in 2008, as I like to say, the day the recession started, I decided to quit my job and become a freelancer. And now I write largely for the Globe and Mail and for the local magazines in town, Vancouver Magazine and BC Business and, you know, for a few others. Great. Awesome. So part of the reason we were so excited to have you on, Francis, is because you have that long history of understanding and sort of just watching how the city works. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to think of an interesting opening question and and what better than just a simple one, who runs Vancouver? 
Yeah, that that is interesting. I mean, obviously, for a long time, it was like a group of old white business guys. And I know some people would think that that's still true. Old white business guys who had a lot of links to um, various interests in town. Um, obviously, always developers. Sometimes, you know, sports would be, you know, a big deal. And, um, you know, there'd be connections there, um, other types of business and so on. Um, who runs Vancouver has changed over the years. I mean, I, I think you do see more people who've been in, deeply involved in the community, um, you know, deciding that they want to run for park board and then council, you know, that's often a stepping stone as right. those two. Um, obviously, development, real estate interests are always big in the city. And that's for a particular reason, which is, the primary business of council is regulating land use. So it's been more unusual to see how involved real estate developers have gotten in the province. It didn't used to be like that. It used to be like mining forestry, mm-hmm. you know, road builders, truck loggers, you know, those kinds of people who really dominated in the supporter donor group. So it's been interesting to see the shift at the province of how dominant real estate has become. But Real estate developers have been interested in city councils since the first one was formed here. Uh, In fact, my house was built by Robert Balfour, who was one of the first councillors. And, you know, half of them were in real estate because that's been the business of Vancouver for a very long time. And city councils, their main job, besides picking up garbage and taking away your poop and stuff like that, their main job is regulating land use. So developers need and want a relationship with those councillors. Just to follow up on that, do you think that the city has a healthy relationship with developers? Um, You never do because they have their interests, which aren't always aligned with, um, you know, what makes a good city or whatever. I know people aren't going to believe this, but I think Vancouver has a healthier relationship than other cities because Vancouver has been in the position of being able to dictate terms for quite a long time. I mean, there was a time when the population of the city was actually declining in the 70s and so on. After Expo, starting in the 80s, you know, it became the place where people wanted to build. And because it was so desirable, Vancouver, much more so than other cities, could say, "Mm, we don't like that. We want you to do it this way. Yeah, they are able to extract a lot from developers. People don't get it. Like they keep saying, oh, we're, you know, giving everything away. They actually extract quite a lot. Like when you compare with other cities, and I know other planners look at Vancouver and go, I wish. Right, Mm -hmm. right. Would you say, and another sort of follow-up I was thinking, would you say since you started watching the city, it sounds almost like um, the dynamics have shifted quite a bit and sort of local sort of community activists have, have become more influential. Do you see that as a, as a positive overall? Is the city moving in the right direction? Well, um, you know, community activism comes and goes. And so, you know, in the 1970s, it was really strong. And people who were trying to protect neighborhoods from density and apartments and things like that, like they're really the people who elected TEAM, which was this new party in 1972 that kind of swept in and um, uh, they were different from the old left-wing and right-wing groups. Um, And then it kind of died off 
Um, there was a real loss of interest in city council. Like when I started in the 90s, it was me and a guy from Sing Tao who was there. That was it. Nobody was covering the city. It was considered boring. And also all the development that was happening was happening in that um, industrial land around, you know, the perimeter of the downtown. Well, Nobody cared because they weren't living there. So do whatever you want. Build all the towers you want. We don't care. Um, what's happened uh, in the last 10 years is that those areas pretty much got built out, like North Falls Creek, Coal Harbor. We mm -hmm. see the results of that, you know, forest of glassy towers. But then developers started to run out of downtown room. So they started looking, well, where else can we build? They started moving out into the established neighborhoods and that's when, you know, kind of hit the fan. Uh, and really, that's what the Vision Council that was first elected in 2008, that's a lot of what they've been dealing with, some of which they haven't handled very well. So it's, you know, kind of added fuel to the fire. Um, neighborhood activism, it's always good when people are involved. But, you know, what a lot of observers will tell you is that, unfortunately, the people who tend to get the most involved and have the loudest voices at council are certain residents over others. So it tends to be, you know, the landowners, the homeowners right. who want to preserve the status quo. And so they're often coming to council. We don't want towers. We don't want apartment buildings. We don't want townhouses. We don't want basement suites. We don't want row houses. We just want things the way they are. Mm -hmm. um, so that's been a real issue. And like in Seattle, one of the things that the Seattle Council has done is start an office that's specifically for renters. And they've kind of um, taken some of the power away from the, the traditional neighborhood groups because they've said those neighborhood groups tend to represent a really small circle of people within that neighborhood, like right. the white, older homeowners who are protecting certain interests. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And we've had people on talking about the NIMBY, sort of not-in-my-backyard mm -hmm. uh, types in, in Vancouver. Should young people be moving out of the city and, and chasing affordability, do you think? Um, well, I would never advise that if they really want to be here. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we've seen a real change, you know, um, that there's been the emergence in Vancouver of what's called Yimbies. Yes, in my backyard. It's, it's a movement that kind of started in San Francisco um, where people are, have been very entrenched about, no, no new building, nothing. You know, don't even think about trying to build something new here. So it started in San Francisco. It now exists in numerous cities, these sort of little YIMBY movements of younger people saying, hey, wait a minute, this is all very nice to preserve your beautiful old houses, but if it means that none of us can ever move in, well, right. we're not so crazy about that. So, um, you know, I, I mean... You know, when I when you talk about what young people should do, I mean, it kind of depends on what you want. If you're really fixated on having like a big yard and a house that's in the middle of that and so on, and some people are, that really appeals to them. Um, uh, then, yeah, you're going to have to hunt around to find that. That's going to be hard to find in Vancouver. Um, but what I increasingly see is people who say, you know, I sort of want that, but I also really want to be in the city, on transit, um, you know, close to where I work or whatever. And I'm willing to live in a smaller space or with less, you know, sort of yard space or whatever. And, and you're seeing people doing that. Right, right. 
So there's a lot of talk about um, limiting demand in Vancouver real estate, and there's also a lot of talk about creating supply. Mm-hmm. What would it take to make Vancouver affordable again? <laughs> <laughs> I, I know that. And if someone gives me a million dollars, I'm going to tell them the answer. No, I don't know. You heard it here first. (laughs) Uh, You know, that's what we're all struggling with, right? What will it take? Um, You know, and so people are trying um, taxes on groups that they think are driving up demand. I mean, right now we have a foreign buyer's tax. Um, What a lot of people have advocated for in the past is, you know, a surtax on anything that seems to be a luxury type um, purchase. Um, a speculator tax, because the problem with a market like Vancouver is it's hard to understand housing supply science. Like, have you, have you ever tried to read an article on it in an academic journal? Almost, like, yeah. Like, there's a lot <laughs> of weird math formulas <laughs> yeah. in there and yeah. stuff like that. So, but from what I've been able to grasp, from what I've read is cities that have a supply problem, that you start to see prices go up. And then once people build and the supply, um, you know, sort of starts to catch up, then the prices come back down. But um, the problem is when they start going up, you get speculators coming in because they say, oh, hey, um, prices are going up. This is a way to make money. And mm-hmm. we've, we've seen this in Vancouver numerous times, right? So then people pile into the market and then they drive it up even more. And then if the supply never does catch up, it just keeps that speculative spiral going upward. So you definitely need a way to try to suppress uh, speculation in some way. And you need supply. Um, and everybody's tinkering with like, how do we do that? How much supply is enough? And is it the right kind? I think we were talking about the relationship of council and developers. And I think this council, when it first came in in 2008, you know, remember there was the big recession, there was the crash. They also wanted to create housing. Um, so they talked, they had a big conference. I still remember it at the cemetery, symbolically. (laughs) There's a really nice meeting room at the cemetery, honestly, I swear to God. Um, And they invited housing advocates and developers and architects and all kinds of people. And what they came up with was this idea of promoting rental by giving developers incentives. Right. And then they also tended to listen to developers who came in pitching specific projects, like Marine Gateway. You know, PCI Mm -hmm. bought that piece of industrial land down by the Canada line. It was zoned industrial, which means they got it for nothing. Mm -hmm. And um, they convinced council, oh, you know, if you want to save the planet, what you should do is let us build a tower here. Um, It's now trading at over a thousand a square foot. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And so um, I think that this council, what happened is they, they started taking a little bit too much advice from developers or, or you know, they were desperate to sort of do something about the housing situation. And so when some developer would come in and say, hey, I can do this for you if you do this for me, mm-hmm. I think they were a little quick to jump at things like that. And I think, you know, they learned over the years, and I'm going to get circled back eventually to the point I would think I was trying to make. Um, but what I've heard various counselors say is, you know, at first we believed it was just supply. And then we came to realize, no, it can't be just supply. We have to shape the supply. Otherwise, they're going to build what's good for them, which is tiny little boxes 
or luxury penthouses, mm-hmm. you know, with not much in between. Um, and so what, what I've seen over the years, the last few years, is council moving more towards shaping the supply, saying you have to build two and three bedroom places, giving more incentives for rental and really trying to encourage rental. Because the, the one great thing about rental is, like, it's not going to be a speculator bait, right? Mm-hmm. It's rental. Mm-hmm. So there's been more of a move towards that uh, as a way of, you know, creating supply, but making sure it's a supply that doesn't just serve the developers and investors. Right. And so in your career as a journalist, have you seen real estate be this explosive as an issue? Or do you think it's just something that's always there? That Because uh, I mean, I feel like everyone's kind of sick about talking about Well, real, I know. Yeah, we are a bit right like now. New York. And, and it is a fact that we talk more about real estate than anyone else in the country, except right. maybe Toronto. Right. Like Mario Canseco at Insights West says, when he does polling and, and he asks people in different parts of the country, like, how much do you think your house is worth? Um, you know, would you ever consider selling it? You know, for, and and in other parts of the country, like half the people don't even know what their house is worth. Yeah. Whereas here, like everyone knows it to the dime. The day the assessment notice comes out, everyone's on the phone. Nah, nah, nah. Mine's <laughs> worth more than yours. So, yeah, we're constantly <laughs> saying it's Vancouver is such a savvy and populace in regards to real estate. And that's in, in part what had you know, contributes to the issue because people talk about foreign investors and for sure there are, Mm -hmm. they are everywhere. Like China is what the United States was in the 50s. It's an industrial powerhouse. They have loads of money thanks to us and shipping them all our cash for their iPads and stuff like that. So they have loads of money. There's definitely foreign investment, but there's a lot of domestic investment. Well, that's part of what uh, I was thinking about when you mentioned about speculators. I mean, Mm -hmm. when the foreign buyers tax came in last year and Adam and I have talked about it on the, on the podcast quite a bit, it was what we saw the shift was all those people, maybe five out of 10 people looking to purchase were local speculators buying rental properties yeah. or investment properties, and they are the ones that pressed pause and pulled back. And because that's they weren't the sure how that... much the values would keep going up. I know, like I did a study once uh, where I looked at um, every apartment in Coal Harbor, in one Coal Harbor tower, and every apartment in the Tall Woodward's tower, mm-hmm. um, and in the Coal Harbor Tower, there were a lot more, you know, Americans, South Africans, the Koreans, I think a couple of Chinese, people from Edmonton, you know, Ontario and so on, buying those nice apartments. What was interesting about the Woodward's building was how many local investors there were. And you can tell because if the property tax bill is being mailed to a different address, you know. And it was like the De Silva's in Burnaby and the Hernandez's in um, Surrey and, you know, the Johnson's in Langley. And a lot of local people had bought um, an apartment at Woodward's as their little piece of, you Mm -hmm. know, casino gambling in Vancouver real estate. I know you're just using examples, but I actually know <laughs> De Silva's in Burnaby. <laughs> shout, out, shout out to the De Silva family. <laughs> I think there's a few of them, probably. <laughs> um, so, okay, so speaking about foreign investment, um, we've obviously seen a lot of recent interventions by the BC Liberal government. What are your thoughts? Are, do you see it as good policy? foreign buyer tax? Uh, You know, I don't know. Uh, You know, like all jurisdictions all around the world are trying different kinds of these taxes. Um, I tend to agree with people like um, Tom Davidoff and others who say, 
why make it just a foreign buyer's tax? Like why not a speculator tax or why not a tax that applies only if you have no income that you ever declare in, in Canada, you know, or something like that. Like it's just a bit too, I, I feel like it's pandering a bit too much to people's stereotypes about how mm-hmm. the real estate market is working. Um, and, but, you know, we'll we'll see how it pans out. I mean, every article I read contradicts the previous one about, you know, whether it's having an impact or not. And I noticed the latest chart I saw on Twitter said prices are right back up to where they were. So um, I don't know. So shifting gears a little bit um, here, uh, we haven't had people on talking much about TransLink, which is a huge, hugely important topic, and you've been writing about it recently. Um, so obviously the Lower Mainland has had a fairly interesting relationship or fraught relationship with TransLink over the last couple of years. Where do you see public transportation going in the next kind of 5, 10, 15 years? Yeah, I mean, it feels a bit better today than it did two years ago. I think two years ago after the plebiscite failed, everyone was like, we're bad words starting with F, you know, like <laughs> just what is going to happen to us? Right. There's no way out here. You know, TransLink was created in 2000 and from day one, they knew that they needed one more source of funding to be able to pay for improvements. They had enough through property tax, gas tax, and uh, fares to kind of cover operating the system. But they knew that they needed one more source because they need to keep adding onto it unless everyone stops moving here, which apparently they're not going to do. So the first proposal was for a vehicle levy, and the NDP we're facing an election and there was a big popular revolt against the vehicle levy. So they canceled it. And then every few years they've tried to convince the province to give them one more source and it just keeps going down the tubes. Uh, And the plebiscite was a way to try to get out of that. That was a disaster um, for various reasons. Um, But there does seem to be a little break in the logjam and largely because the federal government has come in saying, You know, they ran ads during the election here, Edmonton and Calgary saying, we're going to bring you transit. So they are bringing some money in and then that's loosening everything up because once one person puts their money in, then others feel more confident about putting putting more in. So it does feel better. Um, Everyone's now waiting for the federal budget, which I think they think is going to be March 21st where they're going to announce how much they're going to give for the second phase of transit funding. And that's going to be really key um, because if they kind of wimp out and don't put as much in as everyone hoped, that'll really limit what Vancouver can do. If they come through with the full package, then then we're on the way to doing that 10-year mayor's plan that was talked about uh, in the plebiscite. So actually, I think everyone's feeling a bit better, like things are starting to roll out. They're starting to do some service improvements because the mayor's decided we're going to we're going to throw in a bit more in advance for our part. Um, so they, you know, put in a small fare increase, a $3 property tax hike and something else. And so they're starting to put money in, um, you know, the money for the first phase is, is rolling out. And so it actually feels pretty good. And it's a surprising thing that the province isn't more on board with it because like developers 
love transit yeah. you know they love it you know and so many groups do and it it just feels like christy clark and her cabinet are the only people that i don't know why they don't like buses yeah it seems like such a strange trains. why would they you know it seems like so clearly yeah. the way that we're moving and the way of the future yeah and it does seem odd like they always seem to position it as um you you know why should we make people in the north pay for you latte sipping right. bus riders right. to get around um which is weird because uh when you look at it i mean the amount of tax money generated in the lower mainland that goes to the province and then goes to pay for roads in the north is pretty considerable right um but they've always sort of positioned it that way like why should people in the north pay for you to get around yeah uh, however, you know, there's so many people on board, like the port wants better transit because the more cars they can get off the road, the easier it is for the container trucks to get around. And developers want to build near transit. Businesses want to locate their employees near transit. One of the funniest stories I read, too, is some engineering firm that I heard about, like they wanted to be on the transit line not because any of their employees used transit, but because there were so many services near the station. So that's where they wanted um, their new office to be. So, Francis, does Vancouver need a housing reset, do you think? Well, clearly, uh, a council looked around and said, we do have a housing plan, but it's coming nowhere near to matching what the you know uh, what's needed and also it was created at a time before this current like it is a housing crisis right we have zero percent vacancy property prices increased like some incredible amount mm -hmm. uh, i i can't even you know i can't keep up with the percentage but right. you know i just i know that duplexes on my block went from being sold from for 8.99 which i thought was outrageous at the time to 1.45 you know, that's duplexes in a formerly dumpy part of the east side that where we still see the occasional sex worker. So. Right, right. So, um, you know, so I think it was a good idea to have it. And what's really interesting, uh, the mayor made a speech a couple of weeks ago that was kind of an eye-opener, a bit of, you know, I'm more used to him kind of spewing out boilerplate, you know, we must do this, greenest city, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and he really took on the housing thing and talked about how we have to take some pretty dramatic action. And he, he named four, five places where they could try to densify. And five were, you know, sort of what you would expect, transit arterials, you know, various pieces of city land. But he also said we need to go into the single family housing areas and look at ways of doing gentle density. And he said, I'm encouraged uh, to do this because of the young people who I've seen coming out saying, we want to stay in the city. We want a place in this city. Um, and you need to do something to find us one. And so he said that has really made us change our mind about how we're approaching some things like preserving character homes. Should that really be our first priority right. or should it be something else? So it was a real change of tone by him, which he said came from a change of tone in what he was hearing from young people who were starting to come out to public hearings um, and just generally speaking in public about, hey, wait a minute, you know, this, you can't just preserve this city in amber. You have to find a way for us to live here. Right. Well, maybe we'll leave it there. But before we go, we have this segment called the five wire. Can you stick around for that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay. I did it. I'm the one who did it. I admit everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so your favorite neighborhood in Vancouver? Oh, 
besides the one I live in? Do Wait, I have to I name was going to say the, the dumpy east side neighborhood. <laughs> I mean, my favorite Formerly, neighborhood yeah. these Formerly. these days. Yeah, I live in Mount East Mount Pleasant, like the less, uh, you know, West Mount Pleasant is where they fixed up all the nice houses and it's close to City Hall. East Mount Pleasant, they're still working on it. But um, I would say uh, like the place that I've been rediscovering lately is Chinatown. Um, right. You know, I'm in and out of there all the time and I love... I know this is not what you want, a long answer, but I love the variety that there is now. Like you can go and buy $1.99 leggings at some of the cheapo shops or some smelly thing, you know, at one of the herb places. And then there's also like, you know, Jukes or Fat Mao or Ramen Butcher or, you know, like all kinds of interesting new places. Mm -hmm. I agree 100%. Favorite bar or restaurant? Uh a restaurant that I've probably spent the most money, like the minute they see my face, they like give me a table, <laughs> is Sushiyama on East Broadway. Oh, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like just uh, uh, their dynamite rolls are the best. I've never had anything better anywhere else. Favorite place to bring someone from out of town? Okay. You're not going to believe this, but um, the dike in Richmond. Um, because it's so different looking. It's not the dramatic Vancouver that everyone, you know, it's not the mountains. It's yeah, not, yeah. you know, whatever. Like it's very flat there. And you look out over the ocean and the mountains are way off in the distance. And it's just a really different part of Vancouver. Um, and then, you know, if you follow it all the way around, you get to the old Japanese boat works in Steveston. Wow. That's uh, a fantastic answer. Yeah. yeah. And we haven't heard that before. So yeah. No, great. I know. I know. Like, like it's not where most people think of taking out of towners. Right. And uh, Westside Mansion or Downtown Penthouse? You're you gonna get, make you me choose, choose one. between. How about like the other the other kinds of decisions? Walk naked on a bus, or you know, drop <laughs> well, that's off actually your our arm. Next question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have never lived in an apartment, so I would pick a West Side man. Oh. I'm sorry, but I'm really not part of the one percent. So one I'm like, with, can we make that totally clear? But one clear? with multifamily zoning, yes. and then you tear it yes. down. Yes. <laughs> That's, I would, you know, what I would love to do there is in Chicago. I stayed in an Airbnb like this. They have this these areas where it looks like big mansions, but they're fourplexes. You go in, and there's an apartment on each side of the main floor, and you go up a beautiful wooden staircase, and then there's another apartment on each side. So that's what I would do. Amazing. Okay. Great. And the last one, Barbara Meal or Barbara Walters. Do any of your listeners even know who those people are? I don't think they do. We, we, we struggled. I will, say, I will say Barbara Walters because she always makes her guests cry. And that's worth tuning in for, yeah. don't you think? She always makes them cry. Yeah. For sure. Matt has a history of making guests cry as well, but he's no Barbara Walters. Oh, yeah. Well, you didn't get me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on, friends. It's okay. always, that was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, yeah. No, nice questions. Thanks very much, you guys. Great. Take care. Okay. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Frances Beulah. If you're not familiar with Frances's work, you should definitely check out her blog, www.francisbeulah.com. Yeah, it's it's a place that you basically wake up in the morning and you look at a couple different sites. And, and, that, and if you're in Vancouver, them. that should be one of them for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. Um, what a great interview and uh, so many interesting stories that she, I mean, just a wealth of knowledge. Wealth of knowledge for sure. Yeah. Um, hey, 
before we go, we should say we are hiring a realtor. Yes. Uh, this is a great opportunity. I know there's some realtors out there listening, so we've please. had some great applications. We so have. We but are we're still collecting to, them. Yeah, and we are trying to set up some meetings uh, in the next week or so. It's been a busy time in the spring market for sure. And also, um, Matt, I'll just mention I was just recently on Roundhouse Radio. Oh yeah, that was uh, this great. Past weekend talking about spring tips for buyers and sellers. So if you're interested in that, you can check it out, roundhouseradio.com. And it's and, uh, uh, Joanna Connolly's show, The, the Real, Real Estate, Estate Therapist. Therapist, right. Yeah, yeah, so I check listened. that out. I was, I was listening on Saturday morning. That was fantastic. Yeah, well, that means you were up early. So, hey. Uh, 9.30.10, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I thought it was earlier, earlier than that. I didn't listen. I'm planning on listening, though, <laughs> yeah, too. No, so you I'm going to take my, my own advice and go over to that website. <laughs> you didn't listen, and you're going to tell everybody else to go listen? <laughs> Braden, you know, how can people reach you? Yeah. <laughs> Start with Braden. All right. Info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And Matt? Give me a shout at 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And Matt, you're you're motioning to me. I'm, you have I'm motioning else. that I, I want to say one other thing. Come check us out at our site, vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We got the VREP live wire. We got the whole catalog. It's a fantastic place. Braden is uh, updating the blog regularly. Uh, as well as Adam and I. So we, yeah, there's tons. Absolutely. And thank you so much for the reviews on iTunes. We're at 104. If you can believe it. Was it was a big and, week. It was a big week for if, reviews. If you were the person that, that was the 100th we review have on sense iTunes. We know who it is. We, I think we know who it is. So if you can just verify by sending us an email to either uh, well, one of our email addresses or info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com, we've got something very, very special. Yes. Big gift. Yes, a big, very big gift. Is it that big? It's, it's fairly special. It's worth getting in touch about, for okay, sure. Okay, great. Well, have a good week, guys. We'll see you next Sunday. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. This podcast is sponsored by Common Ground Consulting. Are you developing in the Lower Mainland? Common Ground Consulting is a development management and consulting company with experience in single family, townhouses, multifamily, and commercial developments. What I love about Common Ground, Adam, is they manage the whole development process from due diligence and feasibility reports for initial purchase of land to completing rezoning, development permits, and building permits. They streamline the whole process with strong relationships with sub-consultants and municipalities and a deep understanding of all city requirements. Common Ground Consulting. Feasibility and efficiency prioritized every step of the way. Learn more at commonground-consulting.com or 604-807-6419. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, 
new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020.